Let's, let's pray real quick because you're going to give us a Bible answer. So, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this evening. Father, we ask that you would lead and guide, that you would grant us your Holy Spirit and give us understanding of your word this evening. Please give Jason the wisdom that he needs to answer the questions and to share with us this evening. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. We have a good question this evening. They were all good. But this one is one that I've had to look into before too. What does the Bible mean when it says, do no work on the Sabbath? Work is one of those complex subjects. I see somebody I haven't seen in a while. Glad to see you, Ginger. <laughs> um, so work. Work is, um, work is kind of complicated. It's the thing that you do in order to earn money, right? Um, but if you're retired, then you just don't do any work anyway, right? No, it's a bit more complicated than that, isn't it? Work is also the kind of thing that you do um, to, you know, maintain your household. And, um, well, really anything that causes you anxiety, I think, would be considered work. Um, but but so there's some things that you enjoy to do that you just have to do in order to, to, to live. And some of those things I think you'd categorize as work. But then there's also that work that the Bible says you can't do in order to get to heaven. Like, um, there is no work that you can do in order to earn salvation. And, and so I think that it's, it's reasonable to suggest that the Bible or that God is saying when he says don't do any work on the Sabbath that he's talking about physical work and he's also talking about that spiritual thing. He wants us to rest. Um, the thing is, the Sabbath is less about what you should not do and more about what God is inviting you to do, Amen. right? Rest is a, an active thing. Did you know that? Rest is not just um, taking a hike to the springs, you know, the bed springs. That's, that's not what the intention is. There's something more here. And, and the Bible has a few different things that it describes about the Sabbath. One of them is, um, and, and these are just good suggestions that, that you might uh, take to heart. Um, one of them is about spending time in nature. I mean, just look at the story of Genesis 2 when God creates mankind in a beautiful place and, and then he says, let's hang out together. Let's rest. And the first thing that Adam and Eve did, they hadn't, they hadn't done any work. God did all the work of creation. And the first thing they do is they rest. And, and I think that that's a, a really cool thing. We get to hang out with God in the, in the place that he's created. And uh, Paul says that there's, there's two revelations from God. There's the revelation in the word, and then there's the revelation of God through nature. And it's important, it's valuable for us to spend time in nature and to see and understand the God who created. Um, another thing that we can do is that we can worship together. And, and this is something that Jesus gave us a good example. As his custom was on the Sabbath, he went into a synagogue and he, he, he stood up to read the Bible. And so I think that's an important thing, connecting with other Christians, rubbing shoulders with other people that believe in Jesus. Um, that's the thing that is really valuable to do, and worshiping Jesus on the Sabbath day is, is a great thing to do. And Paul says that we should meet together even more often as the second coming of Jesus gets nearer. And so I, I think that's a, an important thing to do. Yeah. Uh, another thing, a third point would be that we should bring joy to others. You remember when the Pharisees were making all these rules about the Sabbath? And I told you it started all the way back 
when Nehemiah was in Jerusalem right after the Babylonian um, exile, and they were so concerned about making sure they never went back into exile that they started making these rules. And by the time Jesus comes around, there's like 600 rules just about the Sabbath, plus a lot of others about everything else. And, and so 600 rules about what not to do. This is work, and that's work, and this other thing is work. And they're just trying to define all the nitty-gritty about what work is. And, uh, and so Jesus, he comes to dispel some of those problematic ideas, and he reminds them of Isaiah 58. And Isaiah 58 says, um, what kind of fast, what kind of special day would um, I think is a good thing? Is it the tearing your clothes and putting ashes on your head and, you know, mourning is essentially what he's describing, or is there something more important? And he says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to break the bonds of wickedness. I want you to um, invite your family into your home. I want you to heal people and, and uh, give food to the hungry and clothe the naked, right? And so what does Jesus do when he comes? He does good. He, does good. Um, he, he casts out the demons, so breaks the bond of wickedness. He casts out demons on the Sabbath. He heals people on the Sabbath. And boy, those Pharisees, they were not happy. He is working. And you know what Jesus says? He says, that's what I want you to do. Do my pleasure on my holy day care for people. And maybe it's you go over and visit some elderly neighbor. Maybe you, you um, give a note to somebody of encouragement. Maybe you give a phone call to a relative. Uh, but bringing joy to people's lives, it's a, an important thing we can do. Um, a fourth point, and I'll just have this one and one more. We can spend time with family and friends. God designed the Sabbath for families. And he even says um, that it's for all of your generations. And keep in mind, he's talking to a, a, a group of people that were more like the Hispanics than like us. They had three, four, five generations, if they lived that long, um, in one home right. or in one area, one little complex. We don't generally have that many generations in one home, and so we don't think of it like this, but, but he's talking about you and your children and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren. This is a, a, a pleasure, a rest that I want you to, to share with everybody. And, and I think that that's something that is important on the Sabbath. Take time. Take time for family. Take time for friends. Spend time developing quality relationships. And Acts, you can find this all through the book of Acts, you know what they did? They got together and they ate. There's something about eating together that's just really nice, don't you think? How many of you like food? Don't forget the spiritual food. <laughs> <laughs> um, obviously, the worship side and the spiritual food, but, but um, there, there is a physical social food. component as well, um, a physical food component. And, and the Sabbath allows that guilt-free quality time. Um, it's like God is saying, stop and pay attention to things that really matter. How many of you would, would be willing to say that you're a workaholic? Don't, don't raise your hand. You don't have to. <laughs> you see, the Sabbath is God's solution for workaholism. It's a command to stop it. <laughs> Just no guilt. You don't have to worry. You don't have to have any anxiety. Just trust in God. He'll provide for your financial needs. He'll provide for your physical needs. He wants you to take time for the people and the things that matter. So the last point is um, worship alone. Psalms, 20, uh, Psalms 92 is a, a psalm about the Sabbath. And uh, he focuses on this idea that, that um, we are um, worshiping God. He says, oh, or Lord, how great are your works. Your thoughts are very deep. Um, you made me glad through your work. I will triumph in the works of your hands. And I think that one of the important things that we can do on the Sabbath 
is spend time alone with God. Um, We don't always have 20 minutes, an hour, three hours to spend every day with God. And maybe maybe if you're um, not, not clocking in and clocking out every day or you don't have little kids at home, maybe you've got time. But for the rest of us, we don't have time. And it's, it's something that we, we have to discipline ourselves to spend time with God on a daily basis. But on the Sabbath day, why, there's so much time. You can take time to be alone with Jesus and to have intimacy with God. So those are some things. Of, uh, I'm not going to define work. The Pharisees did that, and that's a path we don't want to go down. But what I can say is what God is inviting us into is super cool and very wonderful. So, thank you. We, we only we, have one question this night, and now we have a giveaway. All right. What do you have for us? This is fun. Okay, so The Draining of the Sticks. It's a book by Sean Boonstra. Um, does anybody know what the Sticks is? S-T-Y-X. I was informed what it was tonight. I had no idea. I don't feel so bad now. Okay. <laughs> so, the Sticks is the river of the dead. And, and uh, have you heard about giving the, the, the coin to the ferryman to get you across, right? That's the Sticks. Okay, so this book is demystifying death and hell, draining the sticks. And uh, if, it, if it's Sean Boonstra, it's going to be a fun read. So who do we get to give this to? Gary Pinch. Gary Pinch. Nice. Okay. Here we go. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so if you are interested, I have a few more of the copies of that. Grab one. Um, I think it cost us a buck or two, so if you want to throw something into the, the question box, that's fine. If you don't have it with you or don't care to, that's fine too. Um, rather you read it than not. All right. Tonight, our subject is Revelation's Keys of Death. And I'm just curious, is there any way I could get this little TV to be turned on up here? Thank you very much. All right, Revelation's Keys of Death. It's a sober topic. We're going to talk about death. And death is something that's touched every one of us, or if it hasn't yet, it'll touch us sometime soon. Um, either a family member, a friend, or maybe you are at that, that point where you're considering that, that phase of life um, where death might not be long away. Um, so we're going to be sensitive. We're going to explore this in a sensitive way, hopefully, but we want to find out what the Bible says about death. Um, and I think it'll be something that will actually give you some encouragement. Then on um, tomorrow morning, not tomorrow night, tomorrow morning, we're going to throw in an extra one, and we're going to talk about the secrets of answered prayer. And I'm pretty excited about this one. I was uh, working on this message today, this afternoon, and uh, just a lot of fun to see what the Bible says about this, and I think you'll, you'll find some encouragement from this. So tomorrow morning, 11 o'clock, right here, uh, key secrets of answered prayer. Tomorrow night, God's strange act. What does the Bible say? about all those people who don't end up going to heaven. What does the Bible say about how God will end evil in the universe? And when we look at this, what we're really focusing on is not a doctrine. It's not a, I mean, there's so many different ideas about this subject, so many different ideas. Um, We're not just looking at a doctrine or a theology. What we're looking at is the character of God. Who is God? Um, You've all seen a parent who um, responds very badly in the grocery store to a child who's uh, not behaving properly. You've seen that. And what do you do? You judge them, don't you? (laughs) 
<laughs> Come on, admit it, you do. <laughs> and, and when you see that, you see that that's not right. You shouldn't be doing that. And I think that maybe we haven't been as careful to judge God. Some have. And the subject of hell has created more atheists than anything else in Christianity. And we need to look at it. We need to see, like, what's going on here? What does the Bible say? And who is the God who punishes? Like, what does His punishment tell us about who He is? So we're going to explore that Saturday night. Um, Then on Sunday, we get to look at uh, a new subject. If you've been waiting for the millennium and curious if uh, we're talking about premillennialism or postmillennialism or mid-whatever, yeah, (laughs) mid-millennialism, if if you've been thinking about that, uh, we're going to get to talk about it on Sunday night. But see, the thing is, there's, there's people who don't go to heaven and there's people that do. And we get to explore on Sunday night what heaven is like. What's going on? Who are these people and where are they in this, uh, in this thousand years? And then it seems like the Bible has some period of time where the earth is pretty much uninhabited, desolate. Why? What's happening there? What's the Bible say about that? So on Sunday night, we get to look at that. Then on Tuesday next week, how to postpone your funeral, um, we're looking at a question of um, some principles in the Bible for uh, living a longer and happier life. So that one's going to be fun. And then on, on Wednesday, we get to, to jump into um, a little bit deeper subject from Revelation chapter 12 and Revelation chapter 14, these, these centered themes of the book. You remember that woman that we saw, the one that was, um, had the stars around her head and, and clothed with um, the, the sun and standing on the moon? And, and remember, she was gonna, about to give birth, and, and the, the dragon wanted to, to, to devour the man-child, but he was whisked away and caught up to heaven. And of course, we remember that, that story was about the Israelites and how God's people gave birth to, in a sense, the Messiah. The Messiah escaped Rome's and the devil's attempts to kill him, and he went, uh, ended up, after his uh, 33 years or so, he ended up going back to heaven. But then it has that little moment in there where it says that the dragon was angry with the, with the, the woman and the, the, the remnant of her offspring, and that he went to make war with her, and, and she fled to the wilderness for 1,260 days. Now, if you were here the other night, you would know that there's something about that 1,260 days. And we, we looked at that time period already. So we're going to come back and explore that from the perspective of the woman who's had to flee. Where did she go for 1,260 years? That's a question we're going to have to answer. And what happens after that 1,260 years? Where can you find her in the 21st century? So we're going to look at that on Wednesday night. But tonight, Revelation's keys of death. Um, I mentioned we're going to cover some sensitive territory. And I know that this is something that we've all been impacted by. Um, and, And if, again, if it hasn't been something that's close to you yet, it will. I haven't had any close relatives die. Um, my grandma died, but I never knew her. I, I met her once in my life. So it's not something that's really impacted me. But I know that it's, it's going to happen really soon. And I've, I've seen it affect many of your lives and the sorrow that it causes. 
People have all kinds of experiences, but they also have all kinds of stories about this. I've heard some people say that uh, we become angels when we die. Other people think that our spirits wander around this world for a little while, proving themselves um, until they can get to go somewhere. Um, Some people talk about limbo, a mysterious holding pattern for spirits of the departed. Um, Then there's reincarnation. Did you know that Christians, some Christians believe in reincarnation as well as Buddhists and and Hindus and others? Um, Some people believe that their dead ancestors inhabit some place. Maybe it's an area in uh, in a graveyard. Maybe it's a rock, maybe it's a church, maybe it's a house, maybe it's a tree. Um, they believe their, their relative inhabits something, and maybe they interact with them in some way. Others talk about the afterlife as uh, maybe at some point reaching nirvana. Um, others believe that there's nothing after death, just darkness, nothing. And, and so with all these stories, it's understandable that there's confusion and... And it's kind of hard to be objective about the subject. What's true? Or is it just all stories? Do we all just kind of make it up as we go and figure it out? Um, Tonight, I think that we should go to the Bible and find out what the Bible says. What do you think? And and it's important that we don't just find... um, find a truth from the Bible from one verse. We've looked at this before, right? We need to, we need to get a, a broad perspective of what the Bible says on this subject, and we're going to go all throughout the Bible to figure this out. We're going to look in the Old Testament. We're going to look in the New Testament. We're going to look at Jesus' words. We're going to really explore the Bible. And so, as we do that, let's begin with prayer and ask the Holy Spirit to guide us. Father in heaven, tonight as we approach what might be one of the most difficult subjects in the Bible, I want to ask that we would always sense your presence nearby. We're sick and tired of all the religious stories people tell, and we want to know what you think. Tonight, please give us the ability to think clearly and biblically. I want to be found faithful in the Word of God, and I'd like to know that there's a smile on your face when I'm finished because I've been faithful. So I ask your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we begin tonight, I thought I'd... uh, Share a useful biblical principle, Um, and I think that some of you will like this. John 12, 12 says, wisdom is with aged men and with length of days understanding. Sorry, Job 12, 12. And and for whatever reason, our younger generations have kind of lost sight of this. We, We kind of scorn age. It used to be that grandparents were revered, right? There is, a, there is authority in the grandparent. And uh, younger generations, um, well, you don't know how to use an iPhone, so pfft, whatever, right? There's something about our current culture that seems backwards because the truth is when you've been somewhere before, you know something that those of us who haven't been there don't know. And it's ridiculous for us younger people to look at the elderly people and say, whatever, I don't need that. I mean, just imagine if you haven't been to college yet, it would be a good idea to talk to somebody who has to get, an, you know, to get some wisdom. Like, what should I plan for? What should I expect? How do I, you know, how do I know what to do, etc.? Talk to somebody who's been there before and you'll get wisdom or marriage. Oh my goodness. If we would only ask people that are older than us for wisdom. You know that young lady who's just enthralled with that young man, and the mom is just like, no, don't do it, because that young man has all kinds of problems, and that young lady has no idea, because she's never been there before. 
We need to ask our elders. We need to figure things out by, <laughs> by asking for help from somebody who's been there. And if we did, we'd avoid all kinds of pain, wouldn't we? All kinds of problems. I heard a hallelujah from here. <laughs> yes, we need to ask for help from people who know things, from people who've been there before. But when it comes to death and dying, who can we ask? I mean, how many of you have, have um, a good relationship with somebody who's been dead for a while? I mean, there's people that, uh, there's people that have said that they've died, and, but, but uh, you know, they just, they just kind of stood at the edge of the chasm looking over and came back, you know, when the defibrillator hit them, or well, that's what they say. And uh, so they don't really know what it's like. I mean, we need to hear from somebody who's been dead for a while, you know, who's really been in the mix, right? You don't, you don't ask for advice from the person who is married for a minute. You ask advice from the person who's been married for 15 or 30 or 50 years, right? Yeah. <laughs> yes. So, so um, we need somebody who's actually got some experience with this death thing. And, and we don't really have anybody, do we? Except we have Jesus. Well, okay, I was going to mention this. There's the, there's the people who claim that, that psychics can talk to people on the other side of the grave. Um, well, okay. Problem is, th- that, that is um, at, at least 50% wrong. And anything that's only half right is all wrong, if you know what I mean, right? And if we're honest about it, um, none of these psychics have any personal experience. They don't really know, and they could be just be making this stuff up, you know, whatever they see in that smoky crystal ball thing. So, all right, so the one who does know, the one who is for sure experienced is Jesus. Jesus says, I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and that word amen says, yes, absolutely, that's a real thing, I did it, right? So amen, and I have the keys of Hades and of death. Not only did Jesus die, but he holds the key to the door. He, he seems like the right person to talk to about this subject, wouldn't you agree? And uh, so, so tonight what we're going to focus on is what does Jesus say about this subject? And one of the first things that we need to go to is an experience where Jesus had, he had a friend who died. His name was Lazarus, and as Jesus stood by the grave of Lazarus, Lazarus had been dead for four days, and Jesus stood by the grave during this funeral, and funerals back then were real. I mean, today we have a memorial service, but back then they had days of, of um, weeping and sorrow. And you know what happened? The Bible says that Jesus wept. And he didn't, he didn't come as one of the paid mourners. They had some of those. He came as a friend, and he wept. He wept, I think, in a way that you and I can't ever understand, because this is the God who made us, and God did not design us for death. This is the God who has experienced every death in the whole world throughout all time, and in every moment he weeps and he mourns because this was not his design. He understands you and me. He has not isolated himself from our problems. When we experience pain, he is experiencing it with us. And, and I would argue that he experiences it in a deeper way than you and I do. That loss, he, he loves us so much, 
And when one of His children dies, He sorrows. And Jesus points this out when He stands by Lazarus' grave and He weeps. So if you ask me, I'd say Jesus understands this subject in a deeper way than any of us could. He's been through it, He's experienced it, and He knows what He designed us originally for. And and so for me, Jesus' opinion is really the only opinion that I care about. That's where I'm going to go to, and that's what we're going to look at tonight. But tonight we're going to explore the idea of death, but in order to understand death, we have to understand the ingredients for life. We need to understand how God made us, how God intended for us to live. And Genesis 2 in the creation account is where we find this story. Genesis 2, 7 says, And the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Did you find the math equation here? This plus that equals that. It goes like this. Dust plus the breath of life equals a living soul. That's the math equation that, that uh, God gives us for, um, for, for life. Now, when you think about this, you have to realize this is scientific. This isn't just, you know, philosophy or religion. This is science. Because what scientists tell us today is that you and I are made up of the same stuff as the dirt in our backyard and the, and the, the ashes in our fireplace. We're made out of carbon. You and I are dirt. <laughs> but there's a big difference between you and me and the dirt in our backyard or the ashes in our fireplace. And you know what that difference is? The breath of life. If we don't have God's breath of life, then we're just dirt. But with the breath of life, suddenly there's something different about us. <laughs> Hopefully quite a bit different than the dirt in the backyard. Um, and, and, and this isn't just something that happened once. It's not like God breathed into the, to, to Adam the breath of life, and then everything else has just kind of happened after that, and God stood back and said, oh, that's cool. No, like the Bible says, it's Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3, that Jesus literally holds everything together. Our continued existence is dependent on God. This is a really important point when we get to Genesis 2. We are not self-existent. We did not form ourselves, and we did not create our own life, and we do not sustain our own life. This is what Genesis 2 helps us understand. And in the beginning, God never designed us for death. It's not like God gets tired of, of, of holding our, us together. He doesn't get tired of, of ensuring our life. God's not the part of the equation that got broken in, in the death scenario. We sinned, and our sin separates us from the life giver. And because of that separation, well, if we don't have the breath of life, what do we become? Yeah, in fact, Genesis 3.19, God says, For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. When we die, we return to dust, God says. We can't exist without the breath of life. So what happens when we die? Well, there was a, there was a little boy who uh, came running into the kitchen, and he, was, he had this urgent question. You know how little boys are. At least I do. I've got a six-year-old. And he, he runs into the kitchen, and he says, Mommy, the preacher said at church this week that when we die, we go back to the dust. Is that really true? And his mom says, uh, yeah, yeah, that's true. Uh, that's what the Bible says. Why do you want to know? And he says, well, I lost a Lego under the couch. And I looked under there, and it looks like somebody's either coming or going. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. 
So when we added this act of rebellion, we, added, we, we separate ourselves from the life giver. And, and it's at, from that moment on that we're on a ticking time clock, right? There's, there's a, a point at which we have an expiration date. And that's just the reality. Um, Ecclesiastes describes this in this way. The dust will return to the earth as it was, and the Spirit will return to God who gave it. This is the reverse formula for life. Dust plus breath of life equals living soul. Um, Dust minus breath of life equals death. That's kind of the the scenario that we're looking. Now, I want you to think about this, and, and I want you to think about it carefully, uh, because this is where the, the, modern, the modern thinking is a little bit confused. You see that second half where it says the Spirit will return to God who gave it? When we look at this, we, we read it through our own definitions and understanding of what that means. But this was written in a different language and translated into English. And, uh, well, let me just give you an example uh, if you were to read a book that was, say, a century old, you might be reading along and find that, oh, this just, I mean, they're using words I know, but this just doesn't seem like the meaning I understand. It seems like the author is taking this in a different way than I would have expected. For example, you might read, um, she was a nice little girl. And then the author continues on to describe this little girl in, in kind of demeaning ways, like she was um, maybe a little bit um, brainless, and you're wondering, why would he do that? Why would the author say that? Well, it's because today, nice means good and kind and, you know, thoughtful. But back then, nice meant silly or foolish. That's a very different meaning. One's derogatory, one's a compliment, right? And so you and I could understandably be confused. Or you might read in a, a modern investigative novel um, about a clue, and that clue is supposed to be some, some bit of information that will help you come to the, con- the right conclusion in the end, right? It's a, it's a clue. But if you were to read a, a story from 100 years ago, it might have a little bit different way of using the word. Uh, for example, you might read that um, the, the grandma picked up her knitting needles and her clue and headed off to bed. And you'll be like, what? She picked up her what? Because back in the day, clue meant a ball of yarn. It's a very different meaning, right? And so when we read this, and the Spirit will return to God who gave it, we might come to one conclusion, but what we have to try to do is figure out what the author intended. What conclusion did they want us to come to? Is this uh, an interesting fact, an interesting tidbit that might lead us to some true meaning in the future? Or is this a ball of yarn? Like, what exactly is he meaning by this? So with that in mind, let's take a look at this second part. And uh, there's a, well, let's just find from the Bible. Let's go to Job chapter 27 and, uh, and let's explore this. And I want to read it in the King James Version because one of the reasons that we, we come to some confusing understandings of this is because much of, of um, our understanding is based on a translation that was written 400 years ago. Nothing wrong with that, but 400 years ago, words didn't mean the same thing that they mean today. I won't give you um, any more examples, but uh, if you want to ask me about one afterwards, I'll, I'll give you an interesting one. Job chapter 27 verse 3 says this, all the while my breath is in me and the Spirit of God is in my nostrils. What? I mean, is a ghost 
in, in Job's nose? Is he going to sneeze and a ghost come out? What does he mean by this? Well, modern translations have, uh, have corrected this, and, and they say that the breath of God is in his nostrils. Because when you, when you read spirit in the Bible, um, it, it could be a literal spirit being, like the Holy Spirit, um, talking about a, a spiritual being, but um, it also could just be wind. In fact, the original Hebrew word is ruach, which means wind. Um, so you could breathe ruach, or you could pass ruach. Um, there's lots of different things. You, you could have ruach blow through your hair, right? Ruach is, is, it just means wind or breath, right? I'll show you something that's interesting in Psalm 146. Put not your trust in princes, nor in the son of man, in whom there is no help. His breath goes forth, he returneth to his earth, in that very day his thoughts perish. So that word breath is ruach, his, his, his um, wind leaves him. And, and of course, when it says breath, it's pointing back all the way back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, where it says that God put his wind, the wind of life, into man, the breath of life. And so we're talking about a specific breath, God's life-giving breath here. But notice that it adds an interesting point. It says, your thoughts perish. In some versions, it says, your plans perish. But the idea is when you die, you stop thinking. And when you stop thinking, you can't make any more plans. You just, it, thinking is required for planning. So they're the same idea. Your plans perish, your thoughts perish, same idea. And, and of course, that raises some important questions. I mean, it seems like most people say that when you die, you're immediately taken into the presence of God. But let me ask you, if the Bible says that your thoughts perish, and, and then the next immediate thing that happens is you're in the presence of God, don't you think you'd be thinking something? I'd like to be thinking something if I was in the presence of God. That seems like a good idea. I'd, and I'd also like to be worshiping Him. If I'm in His presence, I'm going to fall down at His feet, and, and I'm going to try to do what the, the angels are doing and say, holy, 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 and I'll probably do it badly, and I'll have to have some angel help me out, but, but that's what I want to be doing. But look what the Bible says in Psalm 115, 17. The dead do not praise the Lord, no, nor any who go down into silence. It doesn't say that some of the dead don't praise the Lord. It says none of them praise the Lord. And then it points to this idea that in death there is silence. There's a, a, a psalm that says, make a joyful noise. Hopefully for, um, for some of us, that noise ends up being beautiful, harmonious music. And for the rest of us, it's uh, just our best attempt. In heaven, hopefully all of us, that joyful noise is going to be harmonious. But, but uh, in death, it says there's no noise at all. Silence. The Bible teaches that the moment we die, we become silent. We do not praise the Lord. We don't even have thoughts. And I know that's not what people think. That's not the popular understanding of death. Um, but it is what the Bible is saying. And it says it again and again and again. Look in Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes 9, 5, and 6. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know everything. It doesn't say that, does it? The dead know nothing and they have no more reward for the memory of them is forgotten. Hmm. And then it keeps going. Their love, their hatred, their envy, it's perished. Never more will they have a share in anything done under the sun. Wow. 
And uh, it, it says it again, when you die, you don't know anything. And, and this, is, this is how I know that psychics are lying. Those people that are looking into a, a ball or calling people back from the dead, they aren't calling people back from the dead because the Bible says that the dead can't come back. In fact, Job chapter 7, verses 9 and 10 says this, As the cloud disappears and vanishes away, so he who goes down to the grave does not come up. He shall never return to his house. Wait, wait. Can the dead haunt your house? No, they can't. They don't return to their house, it says. And it says, nor shall his place know him anymore. The dead simply don't come back. They don't haunt houses, um, which makes you wonder what is haunting houses if it's not the dead? That's an interesting question. Um, it can't be the dead because God says so. Um, so. So the question is what happens the moment you die? What, what is going on when you die? And the Bible does give us some specific answers. Let's uh, go back to the story of Lazarus where Jesus wept, and let's see what, what Jesus says about death. And we'll find this in John chapter 11, verses 11 and 12. Sorry, I'm going back and forth in the Bible. Um, This is one of those nights where you just have to assemble lots of data. So John chapter 11, verses 11 and 12. These things he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him. And then the disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll be well, because Lazarus was sick, and they'd got that notice that he was sick. Um, But Jesus spoke of his death. And they thought he was speaking about taking a rest in sleep. And so Jesus says to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. Lazarus is what? Dead. All right, so here's a simple question. What does Jesus compare death to? Sleep, okay. And the Bible, it it says this more than 70 times. Lots of times it talks about death as a sleep. So it's not new to Jesus and I think it says that, this is my, my assumption, I think it says that because that's exactly what it is. Um, and the Bible says that when you die, you don't know anything, you're silent, and, and for all intents and purposes, that sounds a lot like sleep to me. When the Bible explains the picture, death is a rest, a long-term rest. And how long do you sleep? Listen to the way that Jesus describes this to Martha. In the very same story about Lazarus, she's weeping, she's crying, Lord, if you had, if you had come, um, he wouldn't have died. And, and this is what Jesus says to comfort her in John eleven twenty three and 24. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again at the resurrection at the last day. When did Mar- um, Martha, when did Martha expect Lazarus to come out of his grave at the resurrection at the last day. That's the expectation that Martha has. And and that's something that you and I have also read in the Bible, so it shouldn't be a new idea for you and I. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 to 18, we read this, "'For this we say to you by the word of God, word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep.'" I mean, some might stop there and go, look, um, this means that, uh, that, that the dead go to heaven before the, the living, right? We won't precede them. Clearly, the dead are in heaven already, right? Except, what do we keep saying? You got to read the whole thing, right? Keep reading. So, let's keep reading. 
Notice what the Bible says in the next sentence. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead will, what first? Rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up to, together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. And what he's saying is not that the dead are already in heaven, but that when Jesus comes, the first thing that happens is the graves are going to be opened, and then together they're going to rise, and so will we to meet the Lord in the air on the same day. I think that's pretty exciting. And the Bible says that we should comfort each other with these words. That means that, that the thing that the Bible describes about death should be a comfort to us. It shouldn't be something that causes us to, to um, uh, be fearful or to mourn or to... Um, in fact, he says we, we shouldn't mourn like the, the heathen do. Why? Because there's hope. Because there is hope in death. Go back in history and you'll find that early Christians called death asleep. This is a picture of some catacombs in Rome, under Rome, I should say. And it's interesting because the pagans have these very sad descriptions, um, inscriptions that are written on the, the tombs of their loved ones. Stuff like, goodbye forever. I guess we'll never see you again. That's too bad. But the Christian graves are very different. They're marked with words of hope. Um, good night until the darkness passes. That's a nice thought. We'll see you again in the morning, they say, because they see it like a sleep, and that's what Jesus said it was. The Christians know their dead will rise again, and, and in fact, the pagans, they would bury their dead just kind of wherever, but the Christians, the, their dead would be buried in, in families because they saw them as resting together until the resurrection. And just think of that, families rising together. There's going to be a sweet reunion on that day. Go and ask the historians. The earliest Christians would have been amazed by the way that you and I talk about death. Go back and read Justin Martyr. He lived in the second century, the 100s. Justin had a specific ministry. He's called Justin Martyr because he's one of the the, uh, famous Christians who died a martyr's death. Um, But before he died, he wrote extensively um, trying to communicate the gospel to pagans in in a way that they would understand. And so he used kind of terms of philosophy and and stuff that was popular in that day, Roman and, and Greek philosophy. And um, there's, there's a book that you can download for free online. It's called Fragments of the Resurrection, written by Justin Martyr and translated. Um, great book. You should read it. Um, he's got some good stuff in there. But he, he actually admired pagan philosophers, uh, but at one point he said, the difference is this between us and, and these pagan philosophers. They say we have an immortal soul that keeps on living after death, but our hope is in the resurrection. Now, you might say, wait a second, Justin. The Bible tells us we have an immortal soul, doesn't it? Actually, it doesn't. Not anywhere in the Bible does it say we have an immortal soul. In fact, there's only one place the Bible ascribes immortality to anybody. Would you like to know who it is? In 1 Timothy 6, 15 and 16, it says that God alone has immortality, dwelling in an unapproachable light whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. There is only one who's immortal. Think about it. 
when, when the whole Genesis story happened, does the Bible say that man rose from his own power out of the dust of the ground and existed on his own? It doesn't. The Bible gives us a, uh, a clear picture that a divine, immortal being designed us from dust and gave us a gift of life. We are not self-existent, and therefore it makes no sense that we would have immortal souls. There is one um, religious sect that calls themselves Christians. I think most Christians wouldn't, wouldn't say that they are, but um, there's one sect that believes, truly believes in the immortal soul, and they believe that there's souls that are out there just kind of hanging around, um, and then when a baby is born, that soul comes into the baby. It has always existed and will always exist. They basically, and in fact, they believe that, it, that, that um, people were designed to be gods. This is a pseudo-Christian religion. I won't tell you who. But that would be the, the, the um, true understanding of an immortal soul. Most Christians who believe in an immortal soul believe that, that the, the soul is something that begins at life but continues forever. Um, and that, that's a another concept we could explore, but it's not something that we find in the Bible. Genesis 2-7 makes it clear. The Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man was a living soul. Man had a living soul. Man became a living soul. See, the thing is that God designed us as, and from, from his design, we became a living soul. Just like uh, if you, you have a shipwreck, they'll say, you know, 21 souls perished in the Pacific Ocean uh, because a soul is a, is a whole person. So does that mean that a soul can die? Good question. Um, and I wouldn't say take my word for it. We need to look at it from the Bible. And remember, the Bible says the wages of sin is death, right? So let's, let's look in Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 4. Behold, all souls are mine. That's all people. Um, all people are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. So the Bible makes it clear, the soul will die. Now, when you die, the Bible says you fall asleep. You rest until Jesus comes back. And the Bible makes this super easy to understand. If you just, if you just piece it together and read the whole book, you'll see it. In the book of Job, there's this detail uh, a kind of a detailed list of what happens when a person dies, and it's Job 14, verses 12 to 14. It says, So man lies down and does not arise till the heavens are no more. They will not awake nor be roused from their sleep. Oh, that you would hide me in the grave, that you would conceal me until your wrath is past, that you would appoint me a set time and remember me. If a man dies, shall he live again? All the days of my hard service I will wait till my change comes. I'd like to, to analyze this. We have kind of three steps. The first one, we sleep until the heavens are no more. The second, we are resurrected when the wrath of God is past. And the third, we are dead until our change comes. So let me ask you, do we know when this stuff actually happens? Does the Bible tell us when these things happen? The heavens passing away, the resurrection, I mean, sorry, the, the wrath of God being passed and the change coming? Yeah, the Bible actually tells us when these things happen. So let's look at that. Revelation chapter 6, verse 14 is the first one. When will the heavens be no more? 
Revelation 6.14, then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. Or in Second Peter, here's another one, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise. So when do the heavens pass away? At the second coming of Jesus. That's when they pass away. Um, all right. Um, now Job's second point. We're resurrected after the wrath of God is passed. When does that happen? Revelation 15, 1. I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues. For in them, that's the seven last plagues, the wrath of God is complete. So it's going to be after the seven last plagues because we're going to be resurrected after the wrath of God is fulfilled, is complete. And uh, I think when we, when we assemble this detail, when we assemble these things from the Bible, it makes good sense. God isn't trying to hide anything from us, but in our 21st century, we've stopped studying the Bible for truth. We stopped digging and comparing Scripture with Scripture, and I think that that's one of the reasons that we've kind of fallen into this um, confusion over the subject of death. Job's last point about change, when our change comes, when is that? Well, 1 Corinthians 15, 51 to 55 describes it. It says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. The trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. There it is. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. Um, So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortality has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O death, where is your victory? There's no mistaking it. The change happens at the last trump. And that, isn't it, remember that that, that verse that says that uh, the Lord will descend and the trumpet and the voice of the archangel, and the dead will rise, right? There's this, this loud commotion and this command from God. That trumpet is about the resurrection. That's when the change happens. In fact, the Bible teaches that you and I come out of the grave with the same kinds of bodies that Jesus had. Uh, Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21 says this, for our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. When you and I are raised from the dead, um, or, or our relatives or whoever, right, when we're raised from the dead, we get the same kind of bodies as Jesus when he was resurrected, a glorious body, uncorrupted. But let me just ask you this, was Jesus a spiritual being when he rose from the dead? Was, was he like, you know, like, like see-through? Did he float around? No. He, he actually said, touch me and see. I'm not a ghost. Don't be afraid of me. And then he, he ate some food, and it didn't fall down through him and land on the floor. He actually chewed it, and it, you know, the whole digestion thing happened. Like that, God designed Adam and Eve from the very beginning, he designed them with physical bodies, and he made a beautiful garden with beautiful things and delicious fruit and, you know, smelling flowers, beautiful smelling flowers, I should say, right? He made these things because he made physical beings. And does it make sense that God would, in the end, restore us back to his original design? I think so. I think that's, and that's what the Bible describes, 
Okay, so let's go back to Job and look at this timeline one more time. Job 14, 12 to 14. So man lies down and does not rise till the heavens are no more. They will not awake nor be roused from their sleep. Oh, that you would hide me in the grave, that you would conceal me until your wrath is past, that you would appoint me a set time and remember me. If a man dies, shall he live again? All the days of my hard service, I will wait till my change comes. The Bible's picture is super clear. When we die, we sleep, a peaceful sleep until the resurrection, until Jesus comes. And if you really think about this, it's the most loving thing that God could do. Well, let's imagine the alternative. Um, let's say that, that um, you die, you believe in Jesus, you die, and, and you, you immediately go to heaven. And then um, your precious spouse, who you love dearly, um, marries somebody who's more beautiful than you are. <laughs> you won't worry about that because you're in heaven, you're not petty anymore. Um, but then she turns out to be a witch, and she's beating your kids. And you know what you want to do? You want to bring yourself right down out of heaven and solve some problems for your kids, right? Do you think this would be a peaceful experience for you? Or what happens if, if um, your, your family falls into hard times and, and life is really difficult for them? Um, I mean, you either are completely blind to what's going on on earth or you're not happy in that context. It's not a joyful thing. You see, there's a problem on the world a problem that God is in the process of solving. And he does say that there's going to be a solution, that it's not going to last forever. And there's going to be a time when every tear will be wiped away. There will be no more death or sorrow or pain or suffering, right? There's going to be a moment when that's going to happen, but that is not now. And so if, if you're in heaven waiting for your loved ones to pass away, yeah, well, you know, there's some Christians early on that were so enamored, and this isn't so early on, we're talking about the 400s or so AD, but they were so enamored with the idea of dying and going to heaven that they would commit suicide in order to get there. And it was at that point that the church said, suicide cannot be forgiven. If you commit suicide, then you can't be in heaven. And it was to try to prevent people from committing suicide, so it, I guess had a noble intent, but it's not actually in the Bible. The Bible doesn't talk about suicide in that way. Um, it's a, a whole complicated subject we could talk about another time. Maybe put a question in the question box, um, and we'll explore that, that subject later. But um, when we look at the subject of death, God is being merciful. He says, there's going to be a solution, but for now, I want you to rest. You haven't had rest all your life. We'll be in heaven soon. But until then, rest. And this isn't a new idea. I'm not sharing something that, that other Christians didn't know before. Martin Luther, even um, at the, the cusp of the Reformation, exploring the Bible again for the first time, he says, Scripture everywhere affords such a consolation which speaks of the death of the saints, as if they fell asleep and were gathered to their fathers and waited the resurrection together with the saints who preceded them in death. Thus, after death, the soul goes to its bedchamber and to its peace, and while sleeping, it does not realize its sleep. Martin Luther had it right, and that's exactly what the Bible says. And he says it this way in another place, we shall sleep until he comes and knocks on the little grave and says, Dr. Martin, get up, and then I shall arise in a moment and be happy with him forever. Isn't that a pleasant thought? 
When you go to bed at night, exhausted from a long day of, of, of diligent work, and you fall into a deep sleep, um, how long do you, uh, do you feel it is until the, your alarm clock rings? Do you know the passing of time? No. It's a, it's a moment. It's, it's just a fall asleep, wake up. But, but a good amount of time has passed, and you know a good amount of time has passed because you wake up and you feel refreshed. And, and what do you think? Do you think that when Jesus raises you from the dead that you're going to be tired? No, I think you're going to be refreshed. There's something about a sleep that, that is good. Now, I know some of you are wondering, how did we manage to get this so wrong? How did we mess this up if the Bible is so clear about this subject? And that's a, a big question. And, and I think the, the answer is fairly simple. We didn't get it from the Bible. We borrowed it from the pagans. And if you want to point the finger at a, any culture in particular, then you can point it right at the Greek philosophy of the time, which, by the way, we all still think like Greeks. We still have Greek philosophy as kind of the foundation of our culture. And, and so it's no surprise that uh, dear old Plato from about 200 years before Christ, Plato came up with some interesting ideas that we still think about today. And he, he looked around the world and he said, there's something wrong. This is messed up. And what's wrong with this world? It's, there's all kinds of imperfections. And so he, he went on to suggest, and, and other Greek philosophers agreed with him, he went on to suggest that there's, there's kind of a, we're in a shadow world. If you've ever read C.S. Lewis, then this sounds very familiar. We're in a shadow world. See, we, our world is just a, a, a dark shadow of what it should be. This is the imperfect, but, but um, in death, there's this perfection, right? There's this other world out there that's perfect. We are, we are imperfect physical beings, but God designed us to be these spiritual beings in a perfect realm. We see darkly because we're in this shadow world. A bad copy of the real thing was kind of his, his suggestion. And, uh, and so, in, in Plato's mind, the height of perfection was... A, a, a non-physical existence. And he even, he even put phys, the physical and the spirit um, on, at odds, right? The spirit is perfect, and, and in death, the spirit is liberated. Um, the body is carnal, and this is the, the broken thing that's weighing us down. It's, this is where all the problems come from, is our physical body. And if you read that book from Justin Martyr that I suggested you download, you'll find that, that he argues against this philosophy. And he says some suggest that the, that the body is a bad thing and that uh, in the resurrection it's only going to be spiritual. And he just nails that idea to the floor and says, no, that is not what we find in the Bible. So you should read that book. It's good stuff. But it's at this point Plato comes up with this idea and boom, the immortal soul. But this is Plato's idea and not Jesus' idea. And let me just ask you, does Plato have a good, reasonable experience with death? I mean, has he, he's, has he been dead for a while? Was he raised from the dead after he was dead for a while and then wrote stuff about death? No. He's just making it up, man. I mean, he's like my, he's like my son who's coloring with his crayons, just figuring stuff out as he goes, right? That's Plato. He has no idea what he's talking about. 
Not Play-Doh, Play-Toe. <laughs> now, at the time when early Christians were um, trying to figure out how to be in the world, you had a group of Christians who were trying to communicate their ideas about God in a world that was filled with Plato's philosophy and Roman paganism. And so you had these two, these, these two kind of realms of thought that Christians were trying to speak into, and they had this problem with language. And so what they tried to do is they tried to take the language of Rome and the language of Greece, Greek philosophy and communicate Christian ideas through those languages. But, but um, as academics, Christian academics started to explore communicating Christian ideas and pagan words, you pretty soon had these, these academics who adopted pagan philosophies and started to see, well, you know, we're talking about this Christian theory in this philosophical way, and so maybe this philosophical idea is actually compatible with this Christian idea. And you started to get this mix. And no longer were we, start, were we talking about, thus says the Lord, Instead, we were talking about this is an interesting idea, kind of like Plato coloring his ideas. We compromised. Instead of studying the Bible, we let pagans tell us what we should think. Now, I I know that some of you have a, a few more questions. You might ask the question, what about the thief on the cross? And uh, of course, you know the story. The thief on the cross was told, today you will be with me in paradise. Remember that? It's in Luke 23. The Lord, then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replies, assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And it looks like Jesus is making it pretty clear that that moment when he died that day, he would be with Jesus in paradise. But if you think about it, there's some pretty significant problems with this. Problem number one, this interpretation relies on the fact that, that Jesus would be in his kingdom that day, but the Bible, Bible makes it clear that Jesus didn't set up his kingdom that day. Well, um, think about this. Matthew twenty-five thirty-one says that Jesus would sit on his throne when he comes back after the second coming. That, that um, and if you look in Daniel chapter 7, it says that, that his kingdom would be established after the judgment, which was long ways off from, from the, the, the cross scenario. All right, so the kingdom wasn't established that day. Um, that's one problem with this interpretation. Um, the second problem is that Jesus didn't go to heaven that day either. If you look, the, the story goes that Jesus died and was buried in the tomb and was resurrected on Sunday morning. And uh, now, if Jesus died and went immediately to heaven on Friday, that would have been one thing, but it's Sunday morning when the resurrection happens. And in John 20, verse 17, Mary has come to Jesus. She falls at his feet and, and grabs his ankles, uh, worshiping him. And Jesus says, don't cling to me. I have not yet ascended to my Father. So on Friday, he dies. By Sunday, he still hasn't gone to heaven. So that's problem number two. And we're pretty sure that the thief didn't go to heaven that day either. So um, the, the, the Romans 
would sometimes be nice to the Jews, and uh, if there was crucifixions around Jerusalem, they, they would, they would um, take the, thie- the, the, the people who were being crucified and lay the cross down on its side so it wouldn't be visible as people are, are doing the Sabbath thing in Jerusalem. And this happens to be a Friday, and there's going to be a, you know, a Sabbath coming on, and so they ask that this happen. And, and because some people would um, wiggle their way off, um, don't think about that too much, but they would, they would escape when they, the, the cross was laying down, they would break their legs to prevent them from escaping. And it would take sometimes three, four, five, six days for somebody to die on a cross. Now, Jesus' legs weren't broken because Jesus was dead when they came to do this. So it's very possible that that thief on the cross didn't die that day. Um, the sun was about to set. And remember, the day in a Jewish day ends at sundown the sun's about to set, and that thief is not dead yet. Now, um, how, do you, how do you resolve this? What's the proper interpretation? If that's not true, then why does the verse say that? Well, remember when we talked um, in a question a couple days ago about the idea of there not being any punctuation in, uh, in, in the Greek? And, uh, and so, when, um, when translators are trying to, to uh, translate these original manuscripts, and some of these original manuscripts are really great. They have all capital letters, <laughs> and, and they don't even have any spaces between the words, and there's no punctuation. Can you imagine how difficult this is to figure out? Write a letter to somebody without any punctuation in all capital letters and with no spaces. Just, just see what they do when they call you up. It's not easy. Translators have it hard. Now, don't, don't get me wrong. We're not under any um, confusion about what the words are, we're saying. Translators have done some really good work, and, and, and these guys have made a science of understanding ancient literature. Um, so we don't need to be worried about it. God's Word has come through accurately. But we have to recognize that when you translate something from one language into another one, there's some complications, and, uh, and at least in this one, the complication is where do the sentences lie and where do we put punctuation? Things like commas and stuff. How should we emphasize different things? And so hundreds of years ago, literally, during the medieval times, um, they, they uh, would put in the punctuation. And this just happens to be the place that they put the punctuation. Um, so, so let's just look at another alternative. So you see this? Assuredly, I say to you, comma, today you will be with me in paradise. Well, what if we, what if we just moved that comma, took a little bit of trans, translator um, liberty, and, uh, and see if the thing changes? Assuredly, I say to you today, comma, you will be with me in paradise. This is an affirmative, you're going to be with me in paradise, but it doesn't determine the time he's going to be with him. It determines the time that he's talking. And Jesus, was he talking that day? Yeah, he was. He, he was talking. He said, today I am assuring you, you will be with me in paradise. And, and I think a simple comma can really change a lot of things. Let's, uh, let's look at a sentence just for the fun of it. The first line says, let's eat, Grandma. In this one, Grandma is, is sitting at the table with her family. But the second line, let's eat, Grandma. Grandma is not sitting at the table. Grandma is on the table being served. A comma can really change the meaning of something quite a lot. So, 
Uh, what about that other verse, the one that says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord? What about this one? Um, do you mind if we do a little bit of dissecting Scripture? Sometimes we need to understand the structure of something to make sense of the, the meaning of it. Let's not just take something at face value as we see it and insert our own ideas. Let's actually let the author tell us what he means, shall we? Here it is in 2 Corinthians 5.8. We are confident, yes, well-pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Now, does that, does that prove that everything we've studied tonight is wrong? No. It, it, uh, it does say that you are present with God the moment you die, though, doesn't it? Does it? Does it say that? Well, all right, so Paul is coming to the end of his life, and Paul, the guy who wrote this in 2 Corinthians, says something a little bit different in 2 Timothy 4.8. He says, "'Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give to me when? At that day, and not to me only.'" So, not, he's not talking about the day of his death here. He says, "'Not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing.'" What day is he talking about? It's the day of Jesus appearing, the day of the second coming. That's when Paul expects to get his crown, his reward, not at his death. So if this is Paul's theology about death, then why is it in 2 Corinthians he says something that seems different? Well, let's explore it. And we need to start in the first verse of chapter 5, 2 Corinthians 5.1. And it says, and I've, I've highlighted a few things. So notice the difference in color. For we know if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. I mean, notice how clear this is. Paul is saying if this body gets destroyed, he gets another one in heaven. That's all he's saying right here. It's not complicated. Um, And if anything, he's just saying that that I'm going to get an upgrade. I mean, today it's a tent, but then I get mansions, right? I'm going to get an upgrade. Today it's this flimsy body, but then it's going to be this immortal, beautiful body that God has designed. And then he continues on, for in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. Um, this, that's talking about this body, our earthly tent. In this, this body we groan, but we're earnestly desiring the habitation that is from heaven. And then he says, if indeed having been clothed, we shall not be found naked, right? Now, notice Paul is not saying that when we die, we're present with the Lord. What he's saying is that when this body dies, we're not going to end up naked. At some point, there's going to be a new body, right? He's, he's saying we're going to be clothed again. All right, so um, and then uh, these between the two bodies, between the earthly body and the heavenly body, he describes this kind of naked experience, right? And then he keeps going. For we who are in this tent grown, that's, that's our body, being burdened. Again, that, that's, that's, that's just this tent, this, this body of earth. Not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed that mortality may be swallowed up in life. I want of a heavenly body. I don't want to be in this groaning body for very much longer, right? I want what God has, has intended for us. And then he says, now he who has prepared for us this very thing is God, who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. 
So we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. And is that true? While we are at home in this body, on this earth, are we absent from the Lord? We certainly are. He's in heaven, we're on earth. There is a separation that we experience right now. But here comes the kicker. We are confident, yes, well, pleased rather to be absent from this body, the earthly one, and to be present with the Lord. And what's, what does being present with the Lord mean? That we've got a new body, a new tent. And when do we get that new tent? When are we changed? 1 Corinthians 15 says it's at the resurrection that we are changed. I mean, the Bible is amazingly consistent. All throughout the Bible, it talks about this idea in the same way. Paul does not contradict himself, much less the other 40 authors of the Bible. He is super consistent with what God was saying. In the Garden of Eden, Eve came up to that tree, and what did she hear from that snake? Has God said? And then you know what he says to her? you will not surely die. What did God say? In the day that you eat of it, you will die. And Satan says, has God really said? You won't really die. And we've believed that lie all throughout the centuries. We've believed it and we've taught it as though it's gospel truth. Now, maybe you and I have had an experience. There's all kinds of things in life that, that you and I experience. Some people have seen their loved ones come back from the dead. And they, they look like them, they talk like them, they, they um, know things about them, and, and it's, it's hard to refute an experience like that. But what does the Bible say? The dead don't know anything, and they don't come back to you. They don't rise again. They don't come back to your home. So, so the question I asked earlier is relevant. If it's not your dead loved one, who is it? And I think the key is when we explore truth, we, there's lots of ways that, that we can find truth, right? You can look in a history book for truth, but keep in mind that the winners write the history. So it's not always right. We can look at science but keep in mind that our scientific instruments are always improving, and we keep changing our theories because of it. The more we see, the more we realize we have no idea what we're looking at. You can get your ideas from philosophy, from reason, except it seems like everybody has a little bit different take on what life is about. Nobody really seems to know what's truth when it comes to reason. And, and just just look around at children, and you'll notice that we have some broken reasoning. <laughs> look around at, at politicians, and you'll see maybe things aren't quite as reasonable as, uh, as they think they are. Reason isn't the best uh, solution, and, and it might be intuition. Ladies, you guys have some pretty keen intuition. You can experience things that, that us guys just kind of completely ignore, right? A mother's intuition, you know, the eyes in the back of the head thing? That's not, uh, that's not a, a false thing. That's a real deal. Except, can you have feelings in your gut that, that aren't true? Can you have intuition, anxiety that's, that's unreasonable? Yeah. 
I mean, that's what they always say. I don't need to be anxious. My mom does that for me. There's, there's, there's lots of anxiety that's, that's unreasonable, lots of intuition that's just not based in reality. So, so the question is, where do we find truth? If all of these sources are flawed in some way, how do we find truth? And the answer is that God's Word is truth. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. If you want to understand the experiences that you have in life, filter them through God's Word, and God will tell you what truth is. The serpent wants Eve to doubt, but God tells the truth. And, and the truth is, death is not our friend. Death is an enemy, and Jesus is the victor. Jesus has the key to unlock death. So the question is, what is death really like? One day, a, a lady named Joanna got some devastating news. Her five-year-old son was going to die. Her little boy, Michael, and, and she was in shock. And, and her shock started to, her reason started to break through her shock as she re- realized that she needed to, to find a way to communicate this to her five-year-old son. What does she say? How does she say this to her son? And so she, she talks to him. She says, Michael, honey, I'll bet you're wondering what's going on. And Michael was quiet, and then he asked, uh, Mommy, what's going to happen when I die? What's it going to be like? Now, what would you say to a little boy? What would you tell a kid if you had to have this conversation? Would you make up a story? I know a lot of parents do. Well, this is what, this is what she said. Honey, you know when you are, are on a really long car ride and you end up falling asleep? And then you wake up in, in bed, right? You wake up, you're not in the car anymore because daddy has carried you into your bedroom. And he says, yes. And she says, that's what it's going to be like. You're going to fall asleep and the next thing you know, you're going to be at home with Jesus. And that's what happens for all of us. When we die, we will fall asleep in Jesus. And the next thing we'll know, we're going to wake up and see his face. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that even in the hardest situations, you still have an answer. And Lord, we're thankful that we can bank on the fact that you're still a God of love. We recognize that we've made a mess of this world but we marvel that you still want to reverse the tide of sin and even break the bonds of death. Tonight we believe that Jesus rose from the dead, and because of that we know that he will come again to take us back from the clutches of the grave. Thank you for all you do for us. Tonight we want to say that we trust you and we can't wait for your return. And we pray these things in the name of him who was dead and is alive forevermore, Jesus Christ. Amen.